Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He pushed back from his desk. He put down his quill writing instrument. He looked at the parchment in front of him. And he said, Tetelestai, which is just Greek for it is finished. It's the same words that Jesus uttered from the cross. It is finished. And he saw this manuscript that he had spent years on. And he started to reminisce, as we tend to do when we finish a big project, a big daunting task. I mean, sometimes we just want to wash our hands of it and run away from it. Oh, thank God that season's over. Thank God that work project's over. Thank God that's done. But this was one of those monumental tasks that this man had felt called of God to undertake. And his mind started to remind himself about the different folks he had gone and spoke with as he accumulated stories. He remembers the conversations he'd had with Peter. He remembers the discussions that he had with Mary, the mother of Jesus. He remembered some of the discussions, Salome and some of the women who had gone to the tomb and found it empty the day after Jesus had been crucified. He started to recollect some of these discussions. And it was this bittersweet moment when he finished the manuscript, the text. Because he realized it was over. It was done. He also realized it was going to take a long time for him to make another copy. This was long before Gutenberg developed a printing press. And the only way to get a copy was to pay a guy to sit there and write it by hand, word for word, or... Take your time to make yourself another copy. He knew he wanted another copy because the whole point of why he wrote it was to send it off to someone. To send it off to a friend who inquired about these things. To send it to a friend so that he would be convinced that the stories, the, 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 the history that was in the manuscript that he had written, that these things would convince his friend that what was in this was true. And he understood that this was one of the most important truths anyone could know. His name was Luke. And he was a physician. Now, before you get like, wow, you know, he could do operations and stuff. You need to realize you know more about the human body than Luke knew about the human body. And that's not Luke's fault. He just happened to live a long time ago. Not in a galaxy far, far away, but a a long time ago. And they didn't quite have the knowledge that we have about the body. But in his day and age, he was a well-learned man. And he undertook the task of capturing stories about Jesus and his early followers. Luke chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4 say this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You know, if you read this book in Greek, you will find that this beginning, one through four, that the, the style, the flavor, the flow, the, the cadence is very different than the rest of the book. And what scholars have come to believe is that Luke was writing a very formulaic way of saying, this is history I'm writing. In fact, they've gone and they've found other Greek manuscripts. Uh, there was actually a big discovery of ancient Greek manuscripts in a, in a big um, trash dump in ancient, ancient Egypt. You realize someday archaeologists are going to come out to Yuma, to our uh, trash dump, and they're going to rifle through and go, huh, wow, 14.5% interest now available to you only today. And they will use those documents to stitch together what was going on in the everyday lives of people here in Yuma, Colorado. They'll find newspapers. They'll, they'll find letters. They'll find uh, junk mail. And they'll use that stuff to try to figure out what was it like to live in Yuma, Colorado in 2015 and Ray, Colorado in 2015. And we, they do the same thing with these ancient folks and what they found is that there's other documents that sound like these first four verses. And when anybody was writing an eyewitness account, they would use this formula to help you know, this isn't myth. This isn't legend. This is true. You see, what I, one of the things that I want to do today and over the next few weeks is we've started a new year. And in many respects, many people make resolutions to grow, to change, to read, to become better, whatever it is. And honestly, as a follower of Jesus, if you follow Jesus Christ, one of the most important things about you, about your worldview, is what you think about this book, what you believe about this. And one of the most important things you could do is, is to spend time reading it because Many of you are making life decisions every single day, moral choices, ethical choices, how to conduct yourself at home, at work, at leisure, based on stuff in this book. But some of you have never read it. You're taking my word for it. You're taking a radio preacher's word for it. And you're making big, huge decisions based out of this. And one of my arguments would be, if you're going to make those big, huge decisions based out of this, you probably yourself should know what this says, not what Steve says this says, or, or not what you know, somebody on the radio says this says. Those things can help, I tend to think, and hope and pray I help you. <laughs> but you need to know what this says. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're just exploring these things, if this is all new to you, if, if church world is something that you're brought to kicking and screaming to, and you're not sure what to make of it, and you're not sure what to make of this book, one of the things you need to, to think is this. You don't have to believe this to read it. Because that's never the criterion for anything you read. Do you believe everything you read in the Denver Post? Do you believe everything? 
Apparently Tim doesn't. Do you believe everything you read in the Huffington Post, in the Wall Street Journal, in the New York Times? Do you read any, do you just read stuff you believe? You see, if you don't know whether you believe this or not, that's not a reason to not read it. And one of the things that I want to deal with this morning briefly is that in our modern day culture, just this past few months, there was an article in, the, in Newsweek, there was an article in Time, there was an article in Huffington Post. And over the last 10 years, I've just kind of watched as our popular culture has embraced this notion that has almost become common sense to the vast majority of people in, in the western part of the world. And the, these beliefs are, those beliefs are these. That, well, we all know that the Bible is not historically reliable. Well, we all know that these were just myths and legends that grew up over time. Well, we all know that at some point in 300 AD, Constantine and the powers that be and the Roman church and all these things, they, they banded together and they, they, in the interest of power, decided that these four gospels and the rest of these books, that that's all the Bible was. And it was a power grab. If you've read the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown, if you've, if you've read any of those articles over the last few months, as the Huffington Post said, they left all those other gospels on the cutting room floor like they were editing out a movie and leaving and discarding important works. One of the things I want to help you understand is that no, they, they weren't discarding things that are necessarily, they weren't discarding things at all that were the word of God. And none of these things surprise scholars at all. One of the things I want you to hear is what Luke says here. And we're going to look at this passage, but we're also going to look at the end of his book. Because in those two places, we're going to see some profound ideas about what Scripture is. First of all, it's true. It's true. Now, I know that flies in the face of everything I just said that our culture believes about this book. But let me help you understand why I believe that this is true and the culture is wrong. Did you hear what Luke said? I have undertaken. I have undertaken to write down these things, to tell you these things that I got from who? Eyewitnesses. I got these things from eyewitnesses. Did you know that it is Luke chapter 2 that you turn to for the Christmas stories? We just came out of the Christmas season. Did anybody force their kids, like my dad forces our kids before they can open presents to read Luke chapter 2? Does anybody do that? You know, if you don't do that, that's a great idea because it just puts it off longer for your kids. And they're like, oh my gosh, let's just get to this. And even if it's not that great of a gift, at least the anticipation grows, right? It's only Luke that captures those stories. And the reason that Luke captures those stories and nobody else does, I believe, is because he went and talked to Mary. Because later he says, it says as he tells the story of Mary, she pondered these things in her heart. And I think Luke went and he sat with Mary and he said, tell me about Jesus' birth. Tell me about that night. What was that like? You see, he got eyewitness accounts. 
Now, we put a lot of credence in eyewitnesses, don't we? I mean, if you go to trial, if you go to trial for something, who do you want, if you're innocent, who do you want there with you to convince the jury that you're innocent? You want eyewitnesses. You want people who come forward and say, yeah, of course he didn't do this crime or she didn't do this crime. They were with me. We were nowhere near that. You want an eyewitness. In fact, if you were writing something down today, and you can see this in our paper sometimes with these interesting letters to the editor with back and forth banter. Oh, you got it all wrong. This isn't at all what it's like. Oh, yeah, well, this is what I heard, and this is what I heard, and blah, 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 blah. And we go back and forth and back and forth. And the best thing that any of us could do was go to the source, the eyewitness. And the interesting thing with eyewitnesses is an eyewitness testimony always has an angle. Why? Because it's their perspective. It's their experience. It's how they saw it. It's how it was interpreted and, and seen and experienced by them. If these were fictions, they'd be far better books than they are. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that all the little inconsistencies that bug skeptics and atheists would be gone if this was a fiction. You see, there's all these little differences in the stories. And why is that? Because each of the stories was told by a different eyewitness account. And what you can see in there is that the general trajectory, the general uh, agreement is this. Jesus did these things. Jesus did that thing. And this happened to Jesus. I mean, they all agree on that. But they disagree a little bit on how many people were there and what were their names and what happened to them. In fact, I'm always astounded at eyewitness reports about what happened at church any given Sunday. I'll be shopping I'll be out and I'm out and somebody comes up and says, oh my, I really enjoy what you had to say on Sunday, Steve. I'm like, great, I'm glad you got that. Yeah, when you really got into, and they'll start telling me what I talked to about. And then I'm like, I didn't say any of those things. And I'm, you know, what do I do? Just cry, Well, you're completely out of your mind. I mean, I didn't talk about any of that stuff. Or do I just say, well, thank you. I'm glad you got something out of it. I usually choose thank you. I'm glad you got something out of it. And move on and kind of go, what? What happened? You see, eyewitnesses, we often vary on what happened. We, would, we should try this in adult Sunday school right afterwards, and I should just ask you, okay, what did I say during church? And you'd be like, well, he said this, another person say, he said that. See, eyewitnesses vary. And these books, these four gospels that tell the story of Jesus vary. They read like eyewitness accounts. They don't read like fiction. Why do they read like eyewitness accounts? Because they are eyewitness accounts. In fact, uh, if this was in order to strengthen and solidify the power of Rome or the power of the Roman church, these are horrible documents to do that. Horrible documents to do that. Because those folks saw themselves as a continuation of, of St. Peter, the Pope, and you know, the apostles and all these things. Did you know that they look like bumbling fools most of the time in the Gospels? Peter sticks his foot in his mouth all the time. These guys just don't get it most of the time. We'll see that in a moment as we look at the end of Luke. 
If you were going to write a fiction that solidified your power, then you would make these guys awesome. You would give them spiritual insight and abilities, and you know they'd levitate and whatever, and call down fire, and they wouldn't look like bumbling fools. In fact, even the founder of Christianity, if you want to call it that, the founder of Christianity is radically different in his death than the founder of any other religion. The founder of all other religions, you know how they die, how their death is recorded, if it is recorded? Their death is recorded either in myth or legend or maybe in history. And the stories that they tell around the founding character's death is usually that they died with all their followers around them and they died with great bravery and courage, looking up to God and just saying, I'm ready or take me or this is awesome. They probably didn't say this is awesome, but you know, whatever the equivalent was in their language. You know how Jesus, the founder of Christianity, died? He died despised, cursed, naked, beaten, bloodied on a cross, screaming, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, if you're going to create a, a story to, to create greater power for your founder, for your religion, this is not the story you tell. The reason this isn't the story you'd tell is because you would have the founder coming in on his white horse with armies at his beck and call to just come in and kick butt and take names. Because that's all we want, don't we? But this story is, at some level, unsatisfying. And so, it's history it's true. There are so many hallmarks, and I could go on and on and on and on and on, but most of you look bored already, so I'll stop there. Now, it's truth, but it's something else, and we need to jump to the end of Luke. I mean, we see it already there in that chapter of Luke, but we want to jump to the end of Luke, Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 25. And what's going on is that these two guys are walking from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus, and they're on this little excursion down there it's after jesus has been crucified it's after even the reports of his resurrection have started to float around and these two guys are discussing these things and they're a little down in the mouth they're a little bummed and part of it is they just they just didn't understand what jesus was going to do and starting in verse uh, 25 once i find it says this and he said and jesus said to them Oh, foolish ones, <laughs> just in case, you know, Jesus ever gets up in your grill. Uh, he's done it before. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? 
It's a cool story. It's really helpful for people like me. Number one, because there's times as a teacher, I feel like my students don't get it. And one of the things that I take out of this story is that Jesus, the master teacher, his students didn't get it. And sometimes I think, well, the problem's me. And then I'm starting to realize, no, the problem's sometimes you. I mean, the problem here is the students, not the master teacher. And I'm not claiming to be a master teacher by any stretch of the imagination. But sometimes what we need to hear, what we need to experience, we resist. There's something in our heart, in our brain. There's some problem with us to receive what we need to hear. And these guys struggled with this. Here's Jesus, the master. Oh, foolish ones. Now, thankfully, I never call you that. Unless it's in the Bible. And Jesus says, oh, foolish ones. You know I'm kidding with you, right? Jesus says, oh, foolish ones. And slow of mind. Does he say mind there? Does he say mind there? He says, slow of heart. You see, I think he's alluding to something here. Sometimes the problem isn't our mind, it's our heart. Sometimes the problem is this distance from here to here. That you can get a lot of stuff and believe a lot of stuff and understand a lot of stuff about the Bible, but until it gets into here, it doesn't make much difference. One thing that we're learning from this passage is that Jesus takes them to the Old Testament because this hadn't been written yet, these parts of the Bible, the New Testament, the New and Improved Testament, that hadn't been written yet. And all they had was the Old Testament. And Jesus, what does he do? Now, I wish I could have been there. This is like one of the DVDs that I'm going to ask them to dial up as soon as I get to heaven. Can I get the theological Bible teaching lesson that Jesus gave to the two dudes on the road to Emmaus, please? Because I want to hear the master teacher say, this is what's going on in the Old Testament. This is what's happening. And I want my mind blown. I want to sit at his feet and hear this. And I'm so frustrated that it wasn't recorded in here. No offense, God. I mean, that's one of those parts that I'm just like, oh, man, why didn't they put it in there? And that's one of those parts that helps you realize this is eyewitness accounts. Because if it was fiction... If it was written to satisfy the story for the story's sake, they would have gone in and put all that stuff in. But since it was eyewitness, these guys, as we read in a moment, well, we won't read it, but they get up from the dinner table and they run back to Jerusalem. They're like, oh my gosh, we saw the risen Jesus. This is amazing. And the theological Bible dork in me wants this, this teaching here. But one thing we can take away from this is that it is a true story. And its central storyline is a person named Jesus. It's a true story. And the central storyline is the person of Jesus. And I can't tell you how helpful that can be for you when you go back and you start reading the Old Testament. Because there's stuff in the Old Testament that will irritate you. Some of you are experiencing that now as you read Genesis and Job. You follow these reading plans and you're sitting there and you're reading it and you're like, oh my gosh, these guys are chauvinistic. Oh my goodness. 
what is going on here? You, you find that it's a patriarchal culture, and it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and nobody even knows what their wives' names are, right? At least if you do, you don't rat them off. And then it's not only that, it's a, it, the, the eldest son is the best son. But if you start to read the Old Testament, something you're going to see that's going on is that it is subverting that dominant paradigm. It is subverting that paradigm that the ancient Near East had. Every culture functioned that way, but God comes in and he starts to mess with things. Patriarchal culture? Let's name the ladies. Let's give them names. Let's build nations through these barren women who are valued by God. Let's tell their stories. Even the servant ladies, Hagar, her son Ishmael. Let's talk about them. And then he also, every single time in the Old Testament, God favors younger brothers. The ancient Near East, and this is really irritating because I'm a firstborn brother. This is super irritating to me. And I'm just going to have to get over myself. Every time the ancient Near East culture says, oh, the eldest son, that's the most important kid. The eldest son, that's the most important kid. And every single story that you have in the Bible, Ishmael was firstborn, Isaac, secondborn, most important kid. That's where the promise is going to come through. Esau, firstborn. And by the way, have you read that story? When that kid was born, it doesn't say it in the text, but he was an ugly baby. Because it says he came out red and like wearing a hairy cloak. That's what that kid looked like. It's in the Bible. I'm just telling you what's in the Bible. He came out red and wearing a hairy cloak. That is so funny to me. No wonder God didn't like the guy. But anyways, um, like I should talk. And then God picked Jacob to be the chosen one. Joseph, younger kid of all these older brothers. David, younger brother of all these older brothers. Over and over and over again, you have God subverting the culture. Subverting the culture. He sees slaves and women. He sees younger brothers and he uses them. And all the other cultures would have been like, please. Women and younger brothers? We write them off. Not in the Old Testament. Those are the stories you get. And if you understand that this story is about the central person, Jesus, and the work that he's doing in the world, you start to read it differently. It doesn't, it doesn't, you, you don't get stuck on these cultural things. You start to look for that golden thread throughout the Old Testament. And that's the golden thread that Jesus teased out that day. On the road to Emmaus. He started with Moses. You know how Moses was the deliverer of the people of Egypt? Brought him to the promised land? Guess what, guys? I'm the true Moses. I bring the people out of exile, out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery and captivity. I bring them into the promised land, into the new Eden, into freedom. He goes on, he goes to, to Joshua. Joshua was the conquering general. He conquered the enemies 
of Israel. And Jesus says, I'm the conqueror. I'm the king. I'm the general. I ride to the rescue. I'm the one that comes in and I deliver you from your enemies, from sin, from evil, from slavery, from death. I can imagine he goes on to King David. David was the king, the best king, the the pictorial king of Israel. Of, of Israel. He was the idealized king. He was the one that ruled over the, divide, the unified, united monarchy of Israel. And Jesus says, I'm the king. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one that will reign and rule, and I will put the worlds to rights, and I will wipe every tear from every eye. I'm the true king. It goes to Jonah, who, who jumps into the sea and is swallowed by a big fish, and he's called to go to Nineveh and preach to mortal enemies of the Israelites. And Jesus says, I'm the true Jonah. I died, and I came, and I preached to my mortal enemies. And I gave up my life so that they might be saved. And this is just me using my broken, goofy imagination to try to picture what it was like on the road to Emmaus to hear Jesus tease out this golden thread to say that these are true stories and they are about the central person, Jesus. Now I know that one of the things that you need to hear above all else, that I need to hear above all else, I at some level am a skeptic of things. If you spend any amount of time with me, if you're married to me, like my poor wife, Marnie, If you spend any time with me, you realize that I am a skeptic. That I question, I doubt, I wrestle. It's just part of who I am. And I read this book and I dissect this book and I have studied. I know Greek, I know Hebrew. I sit around and I just, I enjoy nerding out on this thing. And I know not everybody likes that. And I spare you so much, believe me, on Sunday mornings. If you don't believe me ask marnie ask my kids another lesson i'm sick of this how come everything's a teachable moment just shut up and listen um one of the things that i needed to hear is something i came across from a guy named tim keller and he said this arguments and explanations about the bible are necessary but not sufficient Arguments and explanations about the Bible are necessary but not sufficient. Huh? What does that mean? That sounds very philosophical. It means that I have been arguing at you for the last 30 minutes on why you should read the Bible, why it's true, why it's about one particular person, why it's important for you to base your life and your lifestyle and your decisions and your ethics and your morals and all that stuff based on this book. I've been making that argument. Also, I've been explaining why that's important, why you should do that, here's how you do it, all those kind of things. I've been making arguments and explanations. And every single Sunday you come, I will make arguments and explanations. And some reason, that's how God wired me up. But the reality is it's not sufficient. It's necessary, but not sufficient. And what does that mean? We see that with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus gives arguments and ex, 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 what is it? explanations. And it's not sufficient. 
They didn't understand. It didn't travel from here to here. And what caused that to travel from here to here? When he took bread and he broke it, it says their eyes were opened. And then poof, he disappeared. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to do that because I can't. <laughs> and besides, the Bronco game is pretty big today. I want to watch it. And that's why we save communion today. You see, one of the things that many of us as skeptics, what we need to understand is that, yeah, we can get all these arguments and all these explanations and we can get all this information and it's still not enough. Some of you who are doubters, who are wrestling with whether God exists or not, whether this is true or not, what you don't necessarily need, although it's necessary, is arguments and explanations, but it's never going to be sufficient enough to convince you What you need is Jesus Christ. What you need is this experience with God. So I have a couple of suggestions for all of us. If you are a skeptic, a doubter, come to church. Be here. You don't have to participate, but you can watch Christians as they seek to follow Jesus, as they break bread together, as they fellowship with one another and with God, as they learn about this book, as they understand the gospel in deeper and deeper and newer and newer ways. You can watch us as we bumble along trying to follow Jesus. I have yet to meet anyone who is transformed just by sitting and reading stuff. People are transformed by relationships they build with people. And if you who are a skeptic or are new to this, if you would come and you would gather and you would find people and be friends with them and you would start to ask those questions, start to wrestle with things, start to, to, to uncover those doubts and concerns, then you'll move from head knowledge perhaps to heart knowledge. Because it's the relationships that help this change. If you've been walking with Jesus a long time, if you've been churching for a long time, like I said, I was coming to church while I was in the womb, and I haven't stopped. And if you've just been doing this thing forever and ever and ever, we grow the same way. We grow the same way. We read the scriptures, and then we get around other people and As the Proverbs say, iron sharpens iron. So one man, one person sharpens another person. The way we grow, the way we change is by getting around other people and watching and helping and praying the gospel deeper and deeper into ourselves and to others. And today we're going to take communion. First, we're going to sing a song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us Is. And I want you to reflect on those words in that, but I want you as well, perhaps, to make your prayer this morning this. Lord Jesus, reveal yourself to me in the breaking of the bread. That's what we all need. Every single one of us. Lord Jesus, reveal yourself to me in the breaking of the bread. So the band's going to come forward and we're going to lead in this song. Just make that your prayer this morning.